Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. We have a cool show for you today, lots of musical guests. A little bit later on, Ace Frehley will join us. Now, if you grew up in the 70s and were a card-carrying member of the KISS Army, like I was, that name will ring some serious bells for you. Ace Frehley was the guitar player in the original classic lineup of KISS, with his intergalactic face paint and a Les Paul that blew smoke from its neck, he was a mainstay of the band's original classic lineup. Recently, he released a new album. It's called Origins Volume 2, and it features covers of songs like Led Zeppelin's Good Times, Bad Times, The King's Lola, uh, We Gotta Get Out of This Place by The Animals. It's all songs that pushed him along the way when he was a young man to becoming a big-time rock star. We'll get to Ace in just a little bit. First, though... She's a cool In 1980, Rough Trade released their second album titled Avoid Freud. The second single from that album was called High School Confidential. It was a giant hit that made you think, it made you dance, and it ushered in an upheaval in art, fashion, and lifestyle, and moved Rough Trade from the underground cult legends that they were to national critical acclaim. They combined punk rock, R&B, show tunes, satirical wit, and raw sexuality into something new that still sounds fresh all these years later. Recently, High School Confidential was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame, and I had the chance to congratulate Kevin Staples. He was the keyboardist in Rough Trade and co-writer of the song. It came as a bit of a surprise. Um, what can I say? It's just, you know, it was, it's really nice to be honored for the craft rather than for something monetary right like it's like a gold record is because you sold a lot of records right something that donald trump would like <laughs> <laughs> but to get an honor for a song it's like you know that's nice it's like you know right. the, the craft is being respected so that's good i think it also reflects back to um how important that song was to so many people i know it certainly was to me uh, when it came out and you know it it was one of those uh, things that was rough trade for me were so significant for a couple of reasons they were um, helped I grew up in a very small town in Nova Scotia and so it helped me uh, broaden my horizons listening to the lyrics and just the ideas different ideas and right. ideas about fashion and things came from them uh, but also because you guys were so cutting edge and so interesting and Canadian, there was actually a chance that I might be able to see you or, or you know, watch right, you right. perform somewhere. And that, for me, as a small town kid, uh, meant the world to me. That's great. Yeah, you know, it's not, um, you're not the first person that has said something quite similar to both Carol and I, mm -hmm. which was uh, kind of a bit of a surprise, but then, you know, a very pleasant surprise to have yeah. people say that, you know, that, that you had that, uh, um, that you gave somebody that outlook or a view or something different. And, and, you know, in a sense, that's all that we were trying to do because we were kind of rebelling against what we were hearing right. in a sense and saying, you know, this is kind of boring. Why don't we do something else? Yeah. Why, why can't we, you know, do, just be different, you know, and, in our, you know, and our inspirations were all over the place, you know, so, yeah, so that's really nice to hear, and, and, and thanks. 
Yeah. Or you're welcome. Whichever. Yeah, yeah, either, yeah. <laughs> either way, Rough Trade was directly responsible for me losing a job at one point as well. I was working in this small town uh, at the, it, it was so small that there were two places to buy clothes. There was, uh, it was called Liverpool, Nova Scotia. There was Liverpool ladies wear and Max Harding's men's wear. And I worked at the Max Harding's men's wear and we sold what everyone, I guess, sold in the 70s suits. And yeah. I remember Britannia jeans and things like that. That was about as cutting edge as that place got. And so the owner uh, went away uh, for a week's vacation or so. And um, I loved the song Fashion Victim. So I thought, I'm going to uh, change up the window display a little bit. And so I did something um, a little bit for then, avant-garde with the window display. And I had the song playing out speakers on the window. And he came right. back and was displeased. And uh, it cost me the job, but I maintain it was worth it. Yeah. No, good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Is it true? Okay, these are some rumors that I've heard about this. Is it true that High School Confidential was originally written for Mink DeVille to perform? That is true. <laughs> Next question. No, um, it was, uh, we were asked by, um, <clears throat> William Friedkin was making this movie Cruising with Al Pacino. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jack Nietzsche, who was the uh, music, like the, well, I guess the producer for the music, um, music supervisor asked us to, um, through a mutual friend, asked us to write a bunch of songs to see, you know, if they would play in the movie. So we did, we wrote a bunch of songs and some of them made it and some of them didn't. And high school was one of the rejects. And, uh, and it was originally written because we wrote all the songs with the idea that, um, you know, Mink was going to be singing them because he did the bulk of the music. Yeah, so that's the story on that. And essentially, uh, <clears throat> the inspiration was, you know, a little bit of the 1958 movie and a little bit of just what, you know, what Carol had grown up with in, you know, in her day in high school and, you know, the cool kids and the not so cool kids, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, so, but having that song being sung by a woman, of course, is what gave the song its, you know, really gave it a lot of character. You're listening to my interview with Kevin Staples, keyboardist for Rough Trade and co-writer of High School Confidential. Yeah, it, it sure did. And, and we'll get there in a sec. So I wanted to find out how you guys work together because you used to play in New Yorkville bars. You were called O for a little while. You were called the, the Bullwhip Brothers for a little while. Uh, and then Rough Trade. So you would perform together for some time before uh, this song came out. What was the songwriting process for you two? Did you write music and go to her with music? Or did Carol come to you with lyrics? And how did, how did that work? It was a bit of both, but generally it was music um, that I would give her music and she would write lyrics. But the process was always a little free form. We lived together mm. and we had separate rooms so we could, um, you know, kind of be doing our own thing. So if, if I was in my room and playing something on the piano or on the guitar and then Carol would go, hey, what's that? You know, and then the next thing you know, it was kind of through the walls the way that we would write in the early days. Uh, and then, I mean, later on when we weren't living together, it was, you know, you give a cassette tape back and forth. But generally it was, I'd have a bunch of pieces of music and say, here, see if you can do something with these kind of. And occasionally the writing process was to, to sit down the two, two of us together 
and kind of improv. So it was make up stories and then make up music. And, it, and a lot of it was sort of satirical in a sense in that, um, you know, it'd be like Carol would say, let's do something like, you know, an old Brill, uh, like 60s girl band kind of song or something, or a cabaret tune or a jazz, uh, you know, something you'd play in a cocktail bar or a funk tune or, you know, so like the songwriting was always just kind of like, oh, making up like, well, this is kind of like, you know, a James Brownie kind of groove or whatever, and then write a song to that. So, um, which sort of gave us, this is a long answer, but it sort of gave us um, our, our music was never in, in a sort of one confined space. It kind of got narrowed down because of the band with that sound, but this, the songwriting itself was all over the place. And the process was pretty much the same. Like I said, basically music, then lyrics or improv. And did it feel like High School Confidential was ahead of its time once you recorded it, originally written for a man to sing, now Carol Pope is singing it, which lends a different feel to the song. Um, did it feel ahead of its time? Did it feel like it was blazing some new ground? Um, not, I mean, you know, I think if you're, if you're cre creative at all, you're never really thinking about blazing new ground. Like it's not what your sort of what your focus is. It's only in hindsight that you look back and say, oh, that was kind of different, you know, at the time. But no, I don't think so. I think when we wrote it, it was just, it was just a lighthearted, silly song, in a sense. We were kind of surprised at how much traction it had. And I think it's partly because, of, you know, getting uh, censored on the radio didn't hurt. And uh, again, that, you know, that was Carol singing it. And, and that we did it on the Juno Awards before it was even a record. I mean, we actually performed that before it was recorded. So yeah, that, now, that, that in itself was a peculiarity. Yeah, it was. Now, because I remember that, and I remember a couple of things about that. I remember uh, that there was a crotch grab, and this was long before Madonna and Michael Jackson had, had sort of adopted that. Right. And uh, I've heard that Carol didn't do that in rehearsal or said that she wouldn't do it on well, live television and then did it. Was there fallout from that? Not for us, I don't think. I mean, uh, no, if, no, I don't. I don't remember any fallout. I remember specifically that they asked us not to do that, or they asked Carol not to do that. And, uh, you know, Carol being Carol said, <laughs> well, but that's what I do. You know, so. <laughs> well, and Murray uh, wrote her a letter. I don't, I don't know, you think? I, I've heard that Anne-Marie wrote her a letter that, uh, a letter of congratulations afterwards saying, you know, uh, it, it was a, a, you know, a funny, courageous thing that you did. Well, Anne was a, was a fan. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 so I wouldn't be surprised. I didn't know that she wrote her a letter, but I wouldn't be surprised that she would do that or make a phone call. Anne was always, uh, you know, supportive of Carol and uh, I think just glad to have some of the heat taken off her because she yeah. was like, you know, like everybody was all about Anne at that time. So like to have a new girl on the street was, was fun. It's like a high school, a, a high school confidential.
told to come at them, ask for a cleaned up version of the track. And uh, <laughs> Carol went into the studio and, and just made up nonsense lyrics. She made me yes. want to order Chinese food and all that yes. kind of thing. Were you at that session when she was doing yeah. that? <laughs> yes, of course I was. <laughs> and and um, yeah, and we just, we, yeah, we, we thought we could get away with just being inane. <laughs> and in the end, we decided, why don't we just bleep it, you know? Like, just a big honk and ah, in the middle of it all, right? <laughs> we just said, like, we can't find any uh, suitable words. When you change the words, it's just, it's inane anyway. You might as that's why it made me order Chinese food. I think we really wanted to do that. And Bernie said, no, you can't do that. You know, <laughs> the Bernie that you mentioned is Bernie Finkelstein. And Bernie uh, had the True North label. You were signed to True North. And, and how important was uh, Bernie and True North to you? Because I feels to me like you were given more latitude there than perhaps you might have been on other record labels. Does that ring true to you? Yes, it does ring true because Bernie was always very much about the artist. Um, kind of, I can't remember the name of the guy that managed Dylan, but the same, you know, to give those persons the latitude to do what they do and to make, a, you know, a, a box for them to put it all in. So, that, yeah, Bernie was always very supportive of the artist and at no time was he ever um, trying to steer us in any other direction or, or turn us away from doing what we were doing, which, you know, in hindsight, looking at the records we made is actually quite amazing because I could see like a, you know, somebody else would have had a different way of approaching it. What do you think the legacy is of this song? It's been 40 years. It doesn't seem like it, but it's been 40 years. Uh, what is the legacy? Um, the legacy is, the, well, I don't, you know, I can't, I don't think I can answer that question. The legacy is that it's, um, it's giving Carol and I great pleasure to know that so many people were influenced by it. Like you were saying, how you were influenced by it as a young man growing up in, in, uh, in the Maritimes. Yeah. And, um, I think, you know, it's, it's a light, it's a light song. It's a very light song. It's a fun song, you know, and, and it's silly and people get that. And, I, and so the legacy is that they see the humor of it and the satire and the sort of uh, raciness of it, you know, whichever, whatever that is, because we never thought of it that way. We just thought it was, you know, it was kind of satirical for us like making, you know, light of the 1958, like, I don't know if you ever saw the 1958 movie. Jerry Lee Lewis, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's, um, it was just that genre, so it is kind of a satirical look at that genre. You're listening to my interview with Kevin Staples, keyboard player of Rough Trade and co-writer of High School Confidential. There's a lot of more sexual content in music today, I think, than there was uh, back when High School Confidential was released. But it seems to me that it lacks the sense of humor, I think, that you guys brought to it. Do you feel that? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, uh, think of Mae West, right? Because I always thought of Carol sort of a little bit of a modern Mae West, in, in a sense. And so there was always humor. It's sexual innuendo, and it is, you know, exploring. It's an explore, exploration. It is not so graphic and lascivious as the sort of, I mean, the kind of sexual innuendo that you're seeing in songs today, like like W.A.P. 
which Ben Mulroney brought up was the number one song on Billboard, Billboard right. right? So that's just, you know, that is, that is pretty graphic. So, um, although, you know, we, we did have some songs in our past that were somewhat graphic, but not, it, it, but yeah, no, I think for us, it was always a lot of our writing was satire, if you listen to it. I mean, if it isn't political or social commentary, it's satire mixed in with that. Being a rough trade fan has been described as kind of like being in a secret club for the less uptight. How do you respond <laughs> to that? Yeah, that's good. It's very good. Yeah. I mean, yeah, for sure. We have, we have a very, uh, you know, discretionary audience, you know, very interesting audience, very eclectic, um, you know, yeah, I mean, for sure. It's kind of like an in, an in crowd, a little in crowd group that follows rough trade around. It's true. It's, it's true. Which is what makes it charming, you know, and our shows were always that way too. Like it, the audience was always like, like such a mixed bag of people, which was great. Well, thank you so much for this. Thanks for taking the time. Congratulations on the award. Thank you, Richard. Do you get a big statue or something or do you get something? We got a beautiful frame. Where is it? I put it somewhere. <laughs> I could show it to you if I could find it here. We got this lovely, and I, I'm, I'm most impressed by this. Let me see if you can see oh, it. Oh, wow, there. yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, but it's signed by Gordon Lightfoot and Robert Charlebois. That's cool. So, you know, this is like, to me, is just everything. <laughs> <laughs> I really feel like I've hit the mainstream here, you know? <laughs> That was my interview with Kevin Staples, the former keyboard player for Rough Trade and co-writer of High School Confidential, a song now inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. In 1972, my guest, Ace Frehley, saw a small ad in the Village Voice. It read, lead guitarist wanted with flash and ability. He answered the ad and soon after joined Gene Simmons, Paul Stanley, and Peter Criss in forming KISS with his intergalactic face paint and a Les Paul that blew smoke from its neck and produced spinning pyrotechnics, Ace's Spaceman character was a mainstay of the band's original lineup. He left the band in 1982, embarking on a solo career, which was put on hold when he rejoined the Kiss in 1996 for a highly successful reunion tour. After completing the farewell tour with Kiss in late 2001, Fraley left the band and resumed his solo career which included Origins Volume 1 in 2016, a collection of covers of influential rock songs, and it features guest appearances from Slash, Lita Ford, Mike McCready, and Fraley's former Kiss bandmate, Paul Stanley. This week, Origins Volume 2 comes out with covers of Led Zeppelin's Good Times, Bad Times, The Kinks' Lola, The Animals' We Gotta Get Out of This Place, Deep Purple Space Trucking, and even a new version of Kiss's 1975 single, She, that appears as a bonus cut. I caught up with Space Ace recently. The first rock record I bought, I believe, was I Wanna Hold Your Hand by the Beatles, 45. And that kind of changed everything, right? It, it started the process, you know, the whole English invasion. And then, you know, by, by the time Cream and Hendrix and The Who uh, evolved, uh, you know, the floodgates were open. 
Now, you have influenced so many guitar players, but who you mentioned Jimi Hendrix, you mentioned Cream, uh, you've covered some of those songs on these Origins albums, but who were your earliest influences on guitar? Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels. Yeah, yeah. Jim McCarty, the lead guitar player. I remember figuring out that guitar solo in Devil with a Blue Dust song, which was a hit in the U.S. I don't know if it was in Canada. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I had to slow down the record <laughs> to figure out the notes. <laughs> the nice thing about records, you could slow them down. Yeah, that, and then I, my brother and sister bought the Birds album, Turn, 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 you know. And then once I got my own stuff, you know, you know, I just started going. I, I was a big Stones fan, more so than the Beatles. You cover Jumpin' Jack Flash on Origins Volume 2. You say you're a huge Stones fan. How did you uh, choose the songs to cover on this album? You've got a lifetime of music to choose from. Why these songs? They just seem like logical choices. Uh, you know, they're all, all the songs on this record are bands that influenced me when I was a teenager, you know, learning how to play guitar. You know, people say you never took a guitar lesson. I go, well, I didn't need a guitar instructor because, you know, I had Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Eric Clapton. <laughs> interpret the songs to make them your own. They, the songs are unmistakably their own, but they also, I think, are also unmistakably yours as well. How do you, how do you find a balance between, you know, the classic song that we all know and love and then putting your own spin on it? Well, I mean, I don't really want to copy the solo note for note, so obviously I want to put a my stamp on the guitar solo. The vocal is unmistakably me because I have that Bronx accent. Yep. You know, I'm not <laughs> gonna sound like Mick Jagger or, or whoever. But, uh, and you know, obviously the production tools that I have to work with today are far superior to the 60s. Mm -hmm. You know, working pro with Pro Tools digitally, you know, it, it's so much easier, the editing process. Uh, the plugins you have to to make the song sound rich, you know, well, you know. Now you have you know so many mixing tools to make a song sound thick and big and rich that wasn't available to the people in the '60s. And you're literally recording some of this stuff in studios and at your own home. I understand you have a, a recording studio there, but then emailing parts to people and they're emailing parts back to you. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of bands record records today without even being in the same room. Yeah. You know, when Paul Stanley did this, the vocal for Fire and Water, he emailed that. I, I emailed him, you know, just the, the stems from Pro Tools. He threw down the vocal, emailed it back to me. Uh, same thing with, with Jim. Uh, who's the guitar player in uh, Pearl Jam? Mike McCready. Mike McCready, who, yeah. Same thing, you know, because he played on Cold Gin on Origins Volume 1. Uh, with Robin Zander for this record, you know, he's in Florida. I'm in California, so, uh, or was. I'm back on the East Coast now, thank God. 
back to my roots, but uh, I, I emailed it to Robin and he went in the studio. You know, with Pro Tools, you just send whatever somebody needs. You know, you can send them a stereo mix. They can put a vocal on top, send it back to me, and then my engineer will drop it into the multi-track. Yep. And uh, it works real nice. And it's easy, quick, and efficient. Does it give you the same buzz when you hear the final product as it did, like when you would just put all the band in one sweaty room and just rock it out that way? Yeah, it's actually more exciting for me now because I'm producing my own records, you know. With Kiss, I was just, you know, a team player at best (laughs) in the beginning. (laughs) And, uh, you know, Paul and Gene dominated the earlier stuff until I you know, did my first lead vocal with Shockby. And then, you know, I started doing more and more and more. But uh, I, you know, I enjoy recording now much more than before because, you know, I, I control everything and, you know, if it stinks, it's because of me. If it sounds really good, it's because of me. Well, it's, it's interesting to look at it because you're recording a lot of stuff. You've been very prolific. And during the, the coronavirus downtime, uh, you recorded new music for another record, not Origins Volume 2, but a new one after this, right? Well, I've started writing. I haven't really started recording the next studio record because I just got a new home. I'm in the process of building a studio in the basement. Yeah, I'll be ready in about a month. And But I've been writing songs for the next record. Because Origins Volume 2 was finished around the holidays. The last thing we did was She, right. which showcased uh, the vocal abilities of my touring band. And I redid the vocals on Lola, the harmonies. My, girlf- my current girlfriend, Laura Cove, redid the... Uh, harmony vocals that my old girlfriend, Rachel, did. <laughs> so I erased hers and put on Laura's, and actually Laura's sound better, so it was a, a win-win. You tell lies thinking I can't see You can't cry cause you're laughing at me so much KISS merchandise out there. What's the, the wildest piece of KISS merchandise that's out there, in your opinion? Probably the coffins, which I'm not happy about because, yeah. uh, you know, recently a good friend of mine passed away, Dimebag Daryl's brother, Vinnie Paul, and I, I, they asked me to speak at the funeral in Dallas. And then they asked me to speak at the grave in the graveyard, and, the, and it was I saw that it was a kiss coffin, and it was pretty weird because I saw my face, you know, plastered on the coffin with yeah. Paul Dean and Peter, and I just I don't think it's appropriate. Steve Earle's new album *Ghosts of West Virginia* is a record that the record review site All Music said contains, and I'm quoting here, some of the most eloquent music he has written in two decades. It's available wherever you buy fine music, so have a look for it. In this segment, we begin by talking about recording in his favorite studio, the legendary Electric Ladyland in New York City, a place that was very appropriate to record an album called Ghosts of West Virginia. It's haunted as hell. Um, it's, um, it's in the basement, the original studio itself, studios A and B are downstairs. There's, now there are studios on the, the floors above, Right. Um, 
it's interesting because it's um um this is how haunted it is. I did, did a I did a thing for FUV there when when Terraplane came out, the blues record. And there's a song on Terraplane called King of the Blues that's essentially the same changes as Hey Joe. And um, you know, the whole story of Hey Joe is a is a Greenwich Village story where Hendrix ran across that song and the guy that actually wrote it probably stole it in, in Greenwich Village. And um, uh, it's not, um, the guy that we thought wrote it for years didn't, you know, he bought it basically is, is the story that I hear. But, but, um, but we were doing King of the Blues and I would, we'd never rehearsed it, we'd never played it. And you know, there's about 30 or some odd, you know, like um, contest winners there from FUV that were in the room, you know, and it's not that big, you know, the main room at Electric Lady is not that big. So they're there, we're set up on one side of the room and I just kicked off Hey Joe when we got to the end of King of the Blues and we played it and it just came out of nowhere. And it was goosebumps all the way through it. None of us had ever played it together. I think all of us had played it at one point in our lives. At least me, you know, Chris Masterson had, you know, guitar player. And, and um, uh, as far as the guys that age in the band and, and you know, Kelly Lenny was still with us in those days and he, he definitely played it. And, uh, you know, uh, Will Rigby was the drummer still then. We, we had all played Hey Joe before. So we got through it just fine. And it's become a regular part of our repertoire you know, now the last, you know, how long has that been? It's been been six or seven years. Now, let's talk about Ghosts of West Virginia. Seven of the songs were written for Coal Country, uh, the show that closed in the wake of the pandemic. And it is uh, a story about the Upper Big Branch coal explosion, killed 29 men, one of the worst mining disasters in U.S. history, happened in West Virginia. Um, aside from... I mean, I assume that they that it wasn't just a a, a writing for hire gig. That this means something to you. That uh, why was it important for you to write these songs? Um, I was sitting around trying to figure out how to make a record that possibly spoke to, and if I did it right for people that didn't necessarily vote the way that I did, I literally thought it was time to do that. I think we're in the trouble that we're in because of a lack of tolerance. And I think lefties are just as guilty of it as, as, as the right wing is. Uh, I'm a little, I'm, I'm a real life socialist. I don't have any trouble defining myself that way. Um, you know, um, but I've never fooled myself into thinking this was anything other than the right of center country. It was born to be that and it is. And if it's gonna be democratic, then that has to include the viewpoints of people that that didn't vote for the candidate I voted for. And we used to have, and this is the one superiority we have to parliamentary governments is our, our truly independent executive, independently elected executive branch. That doesn't happen anywhere else in the world unless there's a military coup. And it's um, it used to be, my grandfather voted for Democrats and Republicans for president. And I, I suspect that was the only election that he, that he voted in. And that's true of a lot of people. Um, I wish it wasn't true, but it is true. So um, we say that uh, people vote their pocketbooks and that's not really what it is. They're voting their hearts. They're voting their families. They're voting life and death in their lives as they see it. And we have to understand about people. Like for instance, 
I believe that coal's bad for the environment and petroleum's bad for the environment, but that doesn't mean shit in West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And, and, and trying to understand, uh, anybody that, that, that doesn't understand why West Virginia went overwhelmingly for Trump is, is not trying very hard. And, and the idea that West Virginia, even there are West Virginians now that I've run into, you know, just, I don't read reviews. I don't, I'm not on social media, but people unfortunately insist on making me aware of it from time to time. And, you know, there have been people that are, West Virginia's red, da, 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 da. And that's not true. It's as purple as states get. They still got a Democratic senator. And the reason for that is unions. And the reason for that is coal. So um, the idea is what do New Yorkers have in common with, with, with West Virginians, this fell into my lap. Jessica and Eric came to me because they knew my music would lend itself to telling the story. I knew them because I was in the Exonerated as an actor twice and actually produced some of the first readings of it as an activist, you know, that, that worked, did a lot of work against the death penalty. That's how I met them. But they knew that my music would lend itself to this story because stylistically, and I talk like this, so I would come in handy on a trip to West Virginia to interview these people. So um, it, it just fell into my lap. It, this was, and it occurred to me that the epiphany was, oh, this is it. West Virginia is the canary in the coal mine. This is a great place. Now this process, it's the beginning of a dialogue. This is chess, it's not checkers. And it's not, you know, I don't, um, some big didactic political record. I've made the preaching to the choir record twice. And, and I'm not particularly didactic when I do that most of the time. I mean, there are some people that think I am, but if you go back and look at Copperhead Road's a pretty fucking political record. So's Guitar Town and their Reagan era, you know, like in my mind, political records. Um, I still write more songs about girls than I do anything else, but I don't, um, I'm, I'm not a political songwriter. I'm just a political person. And I was raised in an era when songwriters just did, it never occurred to me that you didn't write about that, about topics, you know? So, so that's what it is. And I just, this fell into my lap and I, this was exactly the record that I wanted to make. And, and um, I'm, I'm really proud of it. You're listening to my interview with musician, Steve Earle. It's about blood uh, is so powerful on the album. Um, Ghosts of West Virginia, because you take the time to mention the name of every man who lost their lives in there. And there are some people that have the same last name. I assume they are father and son, maybe father and grandfather, whatever Uh, it might be. But it's very powerful. Thank you. The very first, the first verse of that song is largely about a guy named Tommy Davis. And he was the guy that you saw on Good Morning America um, with the ball cap that was talking to the cameras. He was the most vocal guy. He was really angry. Five members of his family, including him, were working there that day, and three of them died. He lost his brother, his son, and his nephew. So he was angry. Um, the names, I wrote the song, and I had it finished, and it was sort of halfway through the workshopping process. And I got reminded because I was in DC with some people uh, doing these concerts um, for the Women's Refugee Commission that Emily Harris and I've been doing, which are the people that are getting into these camps along the southern border, among other places. And so we've been doing benefits for them for the last few years. 
Um, but my, the person that organized the concerts, Gail Griffith, she and I had worked together with Vietnam Veterans Foundation years ago on the landmine concerts with Emmy as well. And just for some reason, being in the company of those people and being in DC, it popped into my head the first time that I went and saw the, Viet the Vietnam Memorial. And I saw it with Vietnam Vets when I saw it. Um, I saw it with Bobby Muller and John Terzano, who, who, who ran BVF for years. Um, and I knew intellectually that those were names. But when you start walking towards that wall, the first time you get close enough, whatever your eyesight is, that you can read one of those names, it stops you in your fucking tracks because you realize they're all names. And that's really kind of what I was going for was that effect. I just, it was a way to, it's humanizing it. It's, it's a, I learned a long time ago that this job is about empathy. And you're, you can, the best way to get a, a, a difficult idea across is people don't give a fuck what, what happened to me. They care about what happened to me that they can relate to. So Johnny Cash came up to me when, I, when Guitar Town was out. I'd met him a few times, but came all the way across the room at a fundraiser we were playing. And he said, I really like that song, Little Rock and Roller. And I was just, you know, it blew my mind that Johnny Cash even knew one of my songs. And uh, I just, um, so I, I uh, um, you know, I, 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 you know, I just went on my chest all puffed up. And then a few days later, I, um, a few days later, I was in a truck stop and a truck driver walked up to me and said, you know, I really like that song, Little Rock and Roller. And a light went off. What do me, who wrote the song, Johnny Cash and the truck driver have in common? We got kids and we miss our kids when we're gone. So that was one of the first, I've been doing it. I had learned to do it because I learned from Guy Clark and other people by osmosis. But that was the first time I became conscious of the fact that this job is about empathy. That's, that's what makes it work. That's how you're able to tell really complicated stories in three or four minutes. That's how you're able to get ideas across it that, that are unpopular and possibly. I've had three people over the years and then keep in mind not everybody has access to walk up and talk to me or the opportunity to do that i've had three people come up to me and say something you wrote changed my mind about the death penalty so you can't tell me that music can't change the world because i have experience of that in my life well that's it for my interview with steve earl remember you can find his new album ghosts of west virginia wherever you legally download and buy music it's a record that everyone seems to love. All Music, the music review site, says that it has some of his most eloquent music that he's written in two decades. And I have to agree, this is really tremendous stuff. And I should add that this interview was recorded before the untimely death of Steve Earle's son, Justin Towns Earle, who passed away in August. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. My thanks to Kevin Staples of Rough Trade, Ace Fraley, will always be from Kiss for me and to Steve Earle. Most of all, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay safe and happy, and we'll talk again soon.